0: Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your everyday with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V I A H E M P.com.
2: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. at Byte.com, that's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
1: Both of us first got interested in true crime not through podcasts, but through books. And one of the best true crime writers working today is Greg Olson. He's produced many terrific titles. The first of his books that I read was Starvation Heights, an incredible true story of medical murder that happened back in 1911. We recently got a chance to talk with Greg about his career, how he researches his books, and his newest title, American Mother, which tells the true story of a troubled family who is at the heart of a cyanide murder case.
0: My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist.
1: And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney.
0: We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet.
1: Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes and, of course, restaurant murders.
0: We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews.
1: We're The Murder Sheet.
0: And this is A Conversation with Greg Olson.
1: thank you so much for talking with yep. us yeah. really excited
3: for sure. I'm glad to be
1: here
0: but yeah no we're really delighted to talk with you uh read the book loved it and uh can't wait to sort of dive into you know the case sure. and also just your process uh okay. writing it
1: absolutely um, can you tell us about the new book
3: yes um let me crack open a beer first okay it's really not a beer it's a coke <laughs> um all right yeah no American mother is the story of Stella Nickel a woman from Washington state that decided that her life wasn't exactly what she wanted it to be, that she wanted more. And she was in a marriage that had been good for a while, but when her husband Bruce quit drinking, she suddenly found herself bored and wishing she had more, all of that. And so what she decided to do was uh, kill her husband. You know, what we all decide to do right when we're bored, kill somebody. the idea of, of the murder was really a means to an end. She wanted to get insurance money. She wanted to get something that would uh, fund her big dream. And her big dream was, by all accounts, a, a small dream, I think, which was she wanted to open a tropical fish store. So she was going to get the money from the insurance company and uh, and her life would be set. Her life would begin anew. But there's a lot more to that. I mean, do you want me to go into more or?
0: Uh, I, I just want to maybe kick off also asking you, you know, you've been reporting on this and, and telling this story for a long time. And can That's you talk right. us through sort of your, you kind of got into that at the end of American Mother. But can you talk us through your journey as an author with this story?
3: Right. I mean, this story originally was my second book. Um. So published some almost 30 years ago, when you think about it, it's a long time. But it's one of those stories that really stuck with me. I mean, I think any story does stick with me that i work on for a couple of years and i'm sure that's the case with you all too it's like you get hooked on certain things that um you pour your heart and soul into right you really want to know like what happens at the end and the funny thing about writing a book is that the end really isn't the end because the story continues when you finish that last word so when you write the end it's not so um and the stella nickel case you know, I had a lot of wonderings about people and what might have truly happened uh, for her to do what she did. And I felt, you know, I worked hard on that book. I mean, you can tell I talked to everybody. I mean, I talked to them all in person. I talked to Stella Nichol um, in prison, I think four times, you know, when we wrote back and forth. So I felt like I really talked to everyone involved in the case, the FBI, the local police, Um the Snow family who would later come into the story. I mean, I talked to every single person. I turned every rock. And yet at the end, I was still dissatisfied. I really didn't know if it was Stella who had done the crime or Stella and another person. And that would be her daughter, Cindy. I always wondered about that because, you know, when the trial happened and when Stella was convicted of her bizarre murder, she, you know, she went off to prison and her daughter got, you know, a $250,000 reward for her testimony against her mom. And that's kind of, you know, like it always troubled me. It always made me think about, you know, why would, uh, you know, why would she turn against her mother? Was it because of the money or was it because of another ax to grind or was it because it was to save herself? And, and
0: one thing that really feels like it's at the heart of the book is like, Brought relationships between mothers and daughters in particular? And can you sort of speak to that and that pattern that kind of keeps coming up in this story?
3: Right. I mean, I think of the thing about all of my books, all of my true crime books are all about relationships. And, oh, there was a murder. You know, to me, it wasn't the murder. That's the focus, because I think what readers really want is you want to be inside of a story. You don't want to be just, you know, you've already read articles about the cases that you're podcasting about or a writer's already read articles or a reader has seen it on TV or, you know, we all come with a bit of knowledge about what we're going to learn more about. So with a uh, Stella Nichols case, it was one of those, you know, that it, it hung with me because there was still some more to find. Um, And to make that, you know, to circle back to the relationship aspect, I feel like that's what we really want to know. We want to know, why do these things happen? How do they happen? But the why is really important, and the why to me is always about um, it's always about relationships with people. I mean, every book I've ever written, you know, and the person that is the perpetrator is somebody who starts that journey in their life very early, maybe even before they're born, and that where you're born and who you're born to and the home you lit, grow up in really dictates a lot of what your life experiences are. Right? Totally. And also dictates the path you are going to take. So somebody like uh, Stella Nickel, you know, and her her whole family situation, even with her own mother, you find there's this uh, this pattern, this pattern of abuse. Okay. well, not everybody who abuses, you know, gets abused, kills. But here she you know, here's Stella, who is in a house and two house fires. She's burned badly in one. She sits at the uh, breakfast table one time while her brother gets thumped on the head and dies, her little brother. She ends up getting pregnant at 13. You know, she said it was a gang rape. You know, when you think like all of these traumatic things, and there's so many of them, you know, do we have enough food to eat? No, we don't. So maybe mom's going to have to be a prostitute. I mean, when you think about it, you know, it's like, that's the kind of story this is. And I think a lot of folks, whether it's, you know, a serial killer or somebody that is a a school shooter or something, I think if you dig back into their beginnings um, and, how they related to other people and how they saw themselves really has um, is it's that roadmap to disaster. And you can see it clearly when you look back.
0: Absolutely. And like the idea of secret keeping, like one thing that fascinated me that so many of the figures that you spoke to sort of uh, seemed very angry at Cindy for basically telling on her mom, like how could you That's turn right. on your mom like that? And it's like, well, it's a murder case. Like, right. And, and, but it, it's like that, that core relationship that you have with your mother, I think is like sacrosanct. And, and here's a very extreme, obviously situation where you have people not understanding why somebody would. It, choose to yeah.
3: And her. it's hard. It's like, there's a code that, you know, some of these people have, and maybe we all have it within our lives. You know, like if I saw somebody, uh, a child being hurt or molested or whatever, I would say something. Um, but maybe somebody else wouldn't because of whatever happened to them in their lives. Right. So it's like, what is that code? Cindy told me later. At the very end, she told me that if my mother had only killed my father, my stepfather Bruce, I wouldn't have told anybody anything. That was her code. It's like, but she took murder outside the family, which is something we should loop back into about what really happened with the crime. Um, and I'm happy to go over that when you. Yeah, please, ready.
0: please jump into. Please it.
3: do. All right. So here's the thing, Stella. Like I said it up at the top. She was wanting to, you know, get a better life, get rid of her husband, get the money and start over. And she looked at all different ways and she discussed these ways with her daughter and other friends even. You know, could she shoot him um, and pretend it was a burglary? Could she have him uh, run over with a car or could you know, I mean, it's like all these different ways that, you know, she's weeding through the ways. Could she poison him? You know, she thought about that. She even put like poisonous, toxic seeds into his iced tea one time, but it didn't really do anything, you know, and then she came upon the idea of those Chicago Tylenol killings that had happened years before. And Stella looked at that and thought, you know, this is a winner. I've got, you know, no one will know who did it. I can also get some extra money by suing the drug makers. So that was her plan. She thought, okay, I'm going to, I'll poison Bruce and, you know, give him these, this medication. And then, Uh, when he dies, they'll find out it was cyanide, which is what she put in those capsules. And then I'll call the authorities and let them know that I think my husband died of my, he died of cyanide poisoning. Okay. But here was the problem with her. She did that. And the medical examiners didn't catch the cyanide. You know, it's a very interesting thing about cyanide. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 it starves you with oxygen at the cellular level it's a terrible terrible way to go but it's kind of unusual and certain people have an ability to smell what that smell is of what cyanide smells like in the human body um and when bruce was examined they didn't smell it they thought he died of emphysema which he had um but, you know his lungs were in terrible shape he was a smoker all his life so you know bruce She just died of a natural cause, which was disappointing to her because what Stella's thinking, you know, and this is a real good tip for any murderer out there. It's like if you're if you murder someone, it's considered an act. It's an accidental death murder is. So if you have like a double indemnity or some kind of clause for accidental death in your um, life insurance, you can up the ante and get more money. And that's what she was really looking for, too. She was looking for that accidental death and she didn't get it. So she ended up, you know, she or somebody ended up a few days later putting some more of those bottles that she had made on the shelves in the Seattle area. And a woman named Sue Snow, a mother of two daughters, she had a 15-year-old girl still at home. She had a habit of taking Excedrin every single morning as kind of a caffeine buzz upper kind of thing. And that morning she took capsules and she collapsed and died of cyanide poisoning while her daughter you know was frantically calling 911 not knowing what happened and it was because of a medical examiner that they had that ability which a tiny percentage of people have when they did the autopsy and did the incision that smell wafted into the room and she said I smell cyanide and when she did that it alerted the news media And the news media came and started doing this story about a cyanide poisoning which gave stella the reason to call in and say i have the same lot number and my husband died you know 10 days before and i believe that it might have been cyanide because he was perfectly healthy so that's that was when she thought things were going her way
0: it's insane to think that she could have possibly (laughs) gotten away with it if she had just i
3: mean but yeah but the thing it did not get her what she wanted and Stella was a tough bird. She was not going to quit. You know, she's no quitter. She's going after that fish store, that tropical fish store. And she's not getting, enough. you know, she's not going to have enough money to do that. So, you know, she's all in. She's all in on her plan and her plot to get what she wanted. You know, she and to think about this, I mean, we can all think about this. It's like it, when, when it happened, you know, in the late 80s, you didn't think about domestic terrorism. You didn't think about that somebody could, poison our water supply or poison our food chain or do anything like that. Like that was not even in anyone's thought, you know? So the idea of contaminating product to kill somebody, you know, it puts her at the forefront of what would happen some 30 years later where, you know, where if you found a package that looked like it had tampered with, you're not going to, you're not going to throw that in a shopping cart. You know, you're not going to open it because now we know there are people out there that will, that want to kill us. I mean, not because of Anya or Kevin that you've done anything wrong. <laughs> it's just that well, you're alive, so I'll kill you. <laughs> you know, that, that's what it is.
0: Right, and and the whole Chicago Talonel murders you mentioned, you know, which are still you know unsolved as I, as far as I understand it. Yes, and, that's right. Know, uh, huge mystery there, but you know, I having delved into the Seattle sort of you know sequel to that is that. How do product tampering murder investigations differ from like the standard type of cases that you might cover? And like, what are the things that investigators have to do differently there? Because as you said, it's it's random; it's purely chance. Often, I mean,
3: that's what's so interesting about it. It's random, right? But here's what I'll tell you, even what I know about Chicago: there is an intended victim of those seven that died. One, there at least one of those people was targeted. Okay. But it hasn't been solved and maybe it will be later. They've had they've suspected some people. But, you know, in an investigation like this where, you know, it's unsuspected and it's we don't know who it is. um, It's a federal case. It's a big thing that talks about, you know, supply chain and food and all that. Where did that cyanide get into the system? That was the first thing they had to find out. Was it done at the factory or was it done, you know, post-consumer? Did somebody buy it and take it home or was it somebody at the store that was mad about something, you know, who was it and, you know, and why did they do it? And in, in Stella's case, she kind of cooked her own goose on this one, too, because she ended up having multiple bottles of cyanide, tampered, uh, excedrin at her home. You know, she had three bottles and the you know, out of five that were found. So how did she have all three of those? She claimed that she bought them at different times at different stores. And uh, the FBI chemists and everybody said that, hey, that's not possible. That's very unlikely that that would happen, um, that somebody could be that unlucky. But back to your point about the investigation, it's a huge investigation. It's product recall. It's the whole idea of everybody scour your cabinets and see if you've got any of it, because anybody out here could be the next victim, which is what happened in the Chicago case. One of the, you know, some of the people who died were grieving because somebody died in their family, you know, one of those victims. And so they took headache pills and they died. So, you know, it's like we got to get this stuff out of the uh, out of the pantries, out of the, the medicine cabinets and to save lives. A
1: weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be.
0: For so many of us, lifestyle changes, like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin
2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: And I'm curious, you know, we kind of touched upon this, but, you know, Stella is this very determined character. She wants her tropical fish store and will do anything to get it. Um, What do you think that her choice, and she was, you know, taking time to choose what kind of mode of murder she was going to go for. What does the choice to make it a product tampering situation sort of say about her and and you know as a murderer as a person
3: well honestly there's nothing colder in my mind when i think about it, it didn't matter who the victim was that the per- it wasn't even a person to her it was just you know that means to the end that we talked about it's the- it was going to get her to what she wanted which was that money for the fish store so i think you know i can see murders that happen where it, you know it's a crime of passion and a or you're mad at somebody and there's anger towards somebody, even if it's ridiculously, mis- you know, whatever. But the idea that you're just kind of a playing wheel of fortune out there with anybody who, you know, spins that wheel, they're going to end up, you know, getting that poison and die. It, to me, that is really, really shocking and really unsettling to think that there are people out there who, you know, who don't care about human life, not at all. I get it if you hate your husband and you killed your husband. I get that. You were mad at him. I get that. But she wasn't even mad at Bruce. She was just bored. So what does that say? What do you think it says?
0: I mean, as a a recovering alcoholic myself, like I'm two years into recovery, and the fact that it was the fact that he stopped drinking that prompted this. Not that he was drinking and out of control, but he was sort of getting his life together. Right. That's, ast- I mean, that's astounding to me. I mean, I-, I guess it shouldn't be given what she went on to do, but that right. to me was like, wow, this is a person who really has a different set of priorities. I think than most people.
3: She did. And here's the thing about that. I mean, it's a bar culture life for them. I mean, they like to go and hang out. Uh, that's what they did after work. And I think so like, if that is your life, you know, and you don't, you know, you're really abdicated responsibility for your kids. You're not raising them or whatever, you know, with Stella, she was not a good mom. So when your husband all of a sudden is, you know, gone off to treatment and then comes back able to live that sober life. Instead of celebrating it, you're pissed off because it's no fun for you anymore, which is absolutely ridiculous.
0: Yeah. It's wild.
3: (laughs) It says a lot about her, doesn't it? Doesn't it say, I mean, it's, it's like the random thing that could be anybody, but it's also like, instead of being happy and celebrating a success, uh, on a hardworking man who, you know loved her he loved her
0: yeah my my heart broke for bruce reading it and <laughs> and one thing i was really impressed with is you, you just managed to achieve this sort of novel like reading experience where you're getting all these details and you're get you're very immersed in the story following along with it but it's not sacrificing on the facts and i guess how how do you go about like you interviewed so many people for this uh hundreds of hours and how do you achieve that level of getting people to open up and really share the details that you need to sort of recreate this crime from all these different angles
3: right i mean i always tell people this my my process is you know i it has to be an adjudicated case as a writer i have to have it go through the system because uh It protects you as a writer. Like you can call somebody a murderer if they've been convicted of murder or whatever. So it's all, and I don't want to interfere with any police investigation either, right? Or FBI investigation. So when it's all said and done, I do what I call like working from the outside in. And I mean, I talk to the people that are less important to the story. They may have appeared in court or maybe they didn't. And I'm getting like that circle tighter and tighter and tighter until I get to those main players. And by the time I get to the main players, they've already heard, from other people that I'm talking. And I think they see that I'm authentically doing a good job, the best job that I can. And and, and I've written several books where people, you know, say, well, I know what the cops said and I know what the prosecutor said, but you, the way you presented it, I'm not really sure what happened or what was right because I'm going to give you the story of not the story that the courts want you to have, not the story the cop was has, you know, in mind for you to believe, but I really think the idea their story is somewhere between between the two. And the people that can give me the best uh, representation are those who were in it. So I pride myself, really. my whole career has been about getting those people to tell their story. I love people like the neighbor, you know, oh my gosh, you know, it's like they're they're because they stand in for you or me, right? You know or family members who you know have that little tiny piece of the story maybe they weren't important in court but they could be the ones that t- could tell me you know like one guy uh, cindy who was stella's daughter you know one of her boyfriends you know made out with um stella you know and, and it was like and i talked to him and it's and you know and i talked to people that's like that's not important for court but that kind of tells me something about these people right That that how reckless they are and how hurting someone else's feelings within the family group isn't important to them. I mean, it's only about what I'm getting right now, you know, not even thinking about it. And then if somebody gets mad, you know, then you're self-righteous. Well, you're such a bitch for, you know, being mad at me for sleeping with your boyfriend. What a jerk. You know what I mean? It's like, like <laughs> they turn it around. So I think that there's something about that, that kind of, uh, you know, in my process, I'm really looking for that stuff. I'm really looking for, um, the fly on the wall, the person that can put me in that scene. Um, I don't make up dialogue. My dialogue is based on the court record for one, but also what people tell me they said at the time. Um, And as the writer, you have to really, you you run that through your own process on whether it's authentic and correct or aligns with what you think is true because not everybody tells the truth even when they say they are. (laughs) You know that, right? Oh,
2: yeah.
0: (laughs) You learn that again and again.
1: (laughs) Right, right. I'm curious about your process when you do other types of books. I think the first book of yours I read was Starvation Heights, which is about something that took place over 100 years ago. You can't really work from the outside in and talk to people then. So how do you research something like that?
3: That was, you know, and I moved to Alala, which is where that happened. You know, on my first day here, somebody told me about, you know, they knew I was a crime writer and they told me, you know, you had to write about our local story. And I kind of roll my eyes or whatever. But I ended up getting hooked um, because, you know, it was 100 years old, right? It was old. And but there were still people left at that time when I wrote that book who knew Dr. Hazard, Linda Hazard, who was the murderer in that story. They were children at the time. 1911, 1912 is when the crimes happened. But they had met her they knew her they had stories to say so i love that part of it and what made that book really work was that the court records had all been preserved and i went to our state capital olympia and i went through you know a box of stuff that no one had ever asked for ever and it was all you know it was the trial transcript it was the letters it was the exhibits and to me that was like the framework for the entire story um, when I wrote that book, there was no internet. So I had to go like to Minnesota, where she lived. I went to different, you know, places to do on the ground research, which i which I love doing. So for that book was very different, in that there was no one there left from the time the the murders happened. But I still feel like I gave a story that um, through the eyes of some of those that were, who were children, they could really give me a sense of what she was like as a person you know, and I love writing that book. I feel like that's one of my, the best things I've ever done. It's a terrific book. (laughs) Uh,
0: You you. mentioned, uh, you mentioned the adjudication angle and you mentioned the sort of like really diving into the relationships. Are there any other things that you look for in a case when that kind of ticks off your boxes and says, okay, I need to cover this uh, as a book and I could really delve into this.
3: I really try to do something also that no one else has done. So if there's a Jody Arias book in someone else's future, it's not in mine because I already know those kind of things have been done. I want to, I am, I am your advocate. You are the reader and I'm going to give you something that you're not going to get anywhere else. That's my, that's everything for me. Um, The other part of it is I'm looking for those, those pieces of a story that will raise an eyebrow or maybe even shock you a little bit, you know? So I always tell people this, like the litmus test for me on a really good true crime book is say you're at night you're in bed with your partner and you're reading one of my books you're going to turn to your partner and say oh my god can you believe what she just did or whatever right to me it's like i'm looking for those oh my god moments that no one else knows and i that i'm a believer that that is what my responsibility is as a writer is to give you a give you that new stuff that you that you've never heard and that you you're going to whisper in someone's ear and say oh my god you gotta read this book
1: i'm curious too you talked about all the research you do all the interviews you do Mm -hmm. just roughly how long does it take for you to report and write uh, a true crime book
3: yeah that's a great question because i've it usually is about a year or more to research okay that's like a pretty fair number and then maybe a year to write, okay? So now that time frame is shortened a bit because there's so much available at my fingertips that didn't used to be, you know, meaning that I can start, like like today, like say I'm doing a story on such and such murder, I can go online and I can request court records and things like that and have them in a week where before I'd have to go and pay my $1.50 a page in person, right? Wherever it was, it was like you couldn't do anything over the phone, let alone (laughs) online. So that's shortened, that part of the research uh, piece. So I would say the, um, you know, in, in, in getting the story, you never know where you're going to go or what you're going to get. So when you look at the materials, it leads you like, it's like that handkerchief from a, you know, just a magician and they're pulling out, you know, it's longer and longer and longer. You don't really know how, where it's going to end. And so some books have taken me maybe um, eight months to research. The fastest book I ever wrote was a novel, and I did that in eight days. So, it's sort of like it's sort of like you know you don't know how long something's going to take you, but what I do know about the process is it's a job, it's work, and it's fun, right? It's all those things. Um, So my process is really simple. I tell myself that I'm going to write a thousand words a day. Well, the average book, you know, mine are sometimes longer. But the average book is 100,000 words or 80,000 words. So I should get it done in 80 days, right? Well, the truth is it takes a lot to get those 1,000 words that you're going to put down. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of talking to people. So it does take longer than just the 80 days.
1: I imagine it's also difficult to find cases because now there is an internet. There's true crime podcasts. There's true crime on television. It must be very difficult to find cases that people don't already know a lot
3: about. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I've got um, I wrote uh, my book, If You Tell, which was a murder case from Raymond Washington, and I was lucky because it had slipped under the radar. No one had done anything on it. Um, And that was about Shelley Notek, who tortured her children and her people that lived with her. And it was, you know, and I gave readers a story they couldn't imagine. Right. And then I started working on um, the uh, Doug and Donna Perry case. I don't know if you know that one from Spokane. It was a, a, a string of prostitutes who were murdered and it went unsolved for many years. And then they ran a DNA test of the semen and like 10 years later and got a hit. But the hit came from a woman incarcerated in Texas. OK, how does that happen? Well, Doug changed his sex to Donna, he says, to stop the killing. He was killing these prostitutes so i've been working on that book i started that one before the pandemic and because of the pandemic and because i believe so much in in in-person interviews it's taken me a long time to get where i am on that on that project you know so um and then no one's written about it because uh no one was talking but some people have talked to me and so i think that's going to be a very interesting book for for readers to kind of get you know into that Story. See, you've never heard of that one, right?
2: No, no
0: ne- never, never. Google
3: Google Doug and Donna Perry, and you'll see. There's a.
2: There's yeah. It'll be good. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well inside to outside repairs to renovations
2: get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today you can do this when you Angie that what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
0: That is wild. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious in terms of, you know, like the, the real people you talk to. It sounds like, you know, from the kind of the ending of uh, American Mother that, you're still in contact with a lot of the kind of main players of of this this uh, case and you know uh the daughters involved and you actually even heard from Cindy and and can you Yeah, tell I them?
3: mean that yeah, hearing from Cindy after like all those years. Cindy, you know, who I wondered about and who I would also kind of say like I was not fearful of her but unsettled by her because I thought the way she was portrayed to me, she was really tough and scary. And she, you know, took the money and it was heartless and all this kind of stuff, because that's what all of her so-called friends in the book say, you know, that, you know, but anyway, when I talked to her on the phone a couple of years ago, we had our first conversation and she was funny and, you know, hard bitten, but um, I liked her. You know, I thought she wasn't so awful you know, I'd like to see her. She sent, she had a reunion, um, with her, her actual birth father and her brother. And she sent me pictures yesterday of the three of them together. So, I mean, I don't have, really have a relationship with her cause I haven't met her, but we kind of closed that loop on Stella and, you know, she doesn't forgive her mom and she I doesn't want to see her mom. But, um, I'm, I'm feeling like, um, I could go see Cindy if I wanted to, so that's kind of good, yeah, I, like I mean, it. I care about these people I write about. I want you to know that's like you it it's different for maybe in the news media when they come in and they do a you know an interview and then the person goes home and they're done. I think books have a well, I was in mean, the shelf life or life, you know, they do. They literally do in that people, you know, can pick up a book. And I tell people when I'm right, interviewing them, I said, you know, your kids are like five right now, but your kid is going to be 20. And maybe at some point you'll want to hand them this book, you know, or whatever, because it's your story, you know, in a way that is also kind of put together with other people's stories that make up the whole story. So you can see where you fit in and i think that's kind of you know i don't know what i'm saying but you know what i'm saying
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah the context um yeah and and-, and and
3: staying in and staying in touch with people it's like it's a serious responsibility to have somebody give you the access to their heart and their mind and their story i mean think about that it's really a big deal and i always know that it's that it says you know to me that they it's about trust and it's about um not violating that and I and I don't think I've you know maybe, maybe one or two people didn't like how they were portrayed in the in a book and I'm and I'm sorry about that it wasn't meant to hurt them and I and I and I think about that all the time
0: absolutely and and I'm curious I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are true crime obsessed are thinking like how do I do that <laughs> like how do, how do you get into writing books about crime and do you have any advice for for folks who you know might want to do that or might want to try their hand at that at some point
3: yeah i absolutely do and i mean I, I you have to write what you love and it says something about the three of us right here we love crime right and we love it for all sorts of weird reasons and also good reasons too We, you know a lot of people want to know why people do bad things or how to spot behavior that might be problematic or or they just like to be scared or whatever right So I tell people, you know, if you're into, if you're listening to true crime podcasts and you're reading true crime books or, you know, watching forensic files and you have this idea that you want to write, then you should. And here's how you do it. It starts with doing it every day. People don't get that. It's hard. It's, you know, it's fun, but it's hard. Like it's work. So I tell, you know, people like every day, if you're writing a story and you've picked the story you want to tell then don't let yourself down. Don't let yourself down. What you need to do is write, maybe it's just a sentence that day. Maybe it's a paragraph or maybe you set a goal for yourself for 10 pages or whatever it is. It's like, you got to do it every single day because I think it's a discipline that will come naturally once you get into it. But it's really easy to say, oh, I don't feel like doing it today. Well, then you're not serious. Be serious about it because you're drawn to it. So and if you want to write about it, then you got to do the work and you will be successful if you get to the end.
1: Why do you suppose people are so interested in true crime?
3: It's like I said, I think people really well, they're interested in the shock of it all. They like it. Some people see it as entertainment. Some people see it as, you know, all my readers, almost all of them really, Kevin, are female. That's like probably 95 percent. and I think it's because women um, and gentle men are fascinated by the idea of somebody doing something so against whatever they would consider that, you know, you, you know, you hold a baby and you think, oh, my gosh, this baby's cute. And you can't imagine somebody holding a baby that's thinking, OK, should I put it in a trash can? You know,
2: what I mean, it's like
3: or whatever. There's something about that, you know, where I think that people are really drawn readers of true crime and consumers of true crime whether it's podcast or whatever i find are the gentlest people the kindest people
0: yeah like the, i'm the, serious you don't understand it yeah, they like, yeah
3: they you, understand want, it. you just can't even believe it so you're into it and um and then i think that's a good thing
1: Another thing I find interesting about you is that you not only write true crime, but you branched out into writing novels. What Uh, led to uh, that?
3: Well, there was a downturn in the true crime readership about, you know, 15, 10 years ago or whatever, um, before this big boom happened. You know, like I started writing in the 90s, um, true crime, which I consider the golden age of true crime writing. Um, If you want to say it's the golden age of podcast, crime podcast is now. But back then, every writer, you know, reporter who worked for a newspaper, if they were covering uh, some halfway interested crime story, they would jump on and write a book. There was a lot of that back in the 90s. But then it sort of got to where TV was, you know, Dateline and all those other shows were really coming into their own and kind of cannibalizing the content. So I switched to fiction. And I'm so glad I did. I mean, I love it. It's freeing. It's you know, it's all crime fiction. Is, so it's you know I'm, draw- I'm drawing on experiences that I've had, or people that I've known, or crimes that I've worked on that didn't really go anywhere. You know, because that's what writers do. We you know we use everything we see in our in our projects. So I switched to fiction, and then lo and behold, I you know I missed the true crime stuff. So I came back to it and found that the audience had returned too. And the audience was getting younger instead of older, which is a dream, really. I mean, I mean, seriously. And the rise of audio—that's another thing. Audio for a crime book, you know, I sell a lot of audio books and all audio downloads on those books because younger people, you know, they have a different way of consuming their content, Um, and that's audio has just like a podcast it's changed the way people, you know, engage in what they're interested in.
1: You said you once wrote a novel in eight days. How do you even do that?
3: It's, I don't know. My arms were like hurting. (laughs) It's just that I, you know, it was a 70,000 word novel and I just was like um, in a manic mode, I think at that time. And just, you know, just had to get it done. And I did. Um, I can't say it, it, it's not my bestseller, but it did okay. Um, and, you know, and it's like, and it was sort of fun. It wasn't, you know, there's a national uh, novel writing thing, you know, about that November. And I never have done that, but I can see other people have. So, you know, I, I might want to try that again. Um, but yeah, it was uh, like exhausting. You
0: should and, do it. And I didn't my tell you my,
3: my best <laughs> process is that for every thousand words I wrote, I give myself a treat okay, so I write at the beginning of the day I write a list of things I want to do like walk on the beach uh have some gin or you know, or, or or um even take a shower like cause I, I'm a, I like to start really early so at every thousand words I stop and do something um or eat something or whatever and then I start up right up again and I mean like that's the old it's like you know I'm a uh, a hamster on a wheel I'm gonna get a treat when I get, that piece done so it, it, like at the end you know when I'm trying to get that last you know 100 words it's like I'll just do anything you know just to, just to get the to get the treat to get that whatever it was a uh, chicken pot pie you know
0: that that is incredible and yeah that writing a novel that fast is very very impressive
3: that's right with no drugs I didn't want to use
0: no the drugs, drugs. <laughs> there no. you go Lots just of treats. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I do, do you have any other questions?
1: Uh, thinking about your novels and stuff, is is it possible to get it truths easier sometimes in fiction than in nonfiction?
3: What I like about, um, the difference about fiction is that you can tie things up a little bit neater. And real life is messy. And some people have, you know, they've given me a review on Amazon about um, one of my true crime books. And they said they didn't like the ending. (laughs) It's like, like, I have no control over the ending. Or they didn't like the language somebody used, the Lord's name in vain or whatever. It's like, well, that's how people talked. And that's what they said. So that part, um, yeah, Um, true, true crime is authentic and real. And fiction gives me that chance to, you know, like play with the story um i'm inspired by a true story usually when i write a novel um i wrote a novel called uh, the last thing she ever did and it was inspired by a little clipping i saw online about a person here in the seattle area that had accidentally backed over the neighbor kid and killed the neighbor kid and i thought about that i thought is there anything worse <laughs> and we could could any of us do anything worse Than to kill the neighbor's little kid you know what I mean whether it's an accident or not so I wrote a whole book about you know about a woman who had done that or at least thought she had
1: I'm also curious you talk about the the research for one of these true crime books can take a year and then you write it for a year Mm -hmm. and so with spending so much time with that one story rattling around in your head what happens to you mentally when you step away from that
3: Yeah. People ask that a lot, Kevin. And the idea on that is I have, you know, people say, oh, you must be so depressed, you know, but I actually feel like, I feel like there's sort of some wind at my back and some urging from whether it's the family or the victims that are dead, even in my mind, I can play that game with myself that, you know, I'm doing something good. Um, And that, so at the end, I feel okay about it. I've written a couple of books that My very first one about a little Amish kid who was murdered that have lingered in my mind. You know, it's like it won't ever go away. And then I wrote about a mining disaster in Idaho where 91 men were killed. And that really, really got to me. But generally with the murder stories, um, I'm able to like literally close the book when I'm done um, on the anguish and the hurt of it all. But it never leaves my mind that those people gave me that story. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to see it to the end, whatever that end is. And sometimes that end is the person that I wrote about gets out of prison or whatever or dies. So, um, yeah, I don't, you know, that people say, oh, do you lose sleep over it or whatever? And the answer is not really. I've got stuff in my own life that make me lose sleep.
1: Uh, you, you say this, this is a case that lingered in your mind for a while after you initially covered it. And then you mentioned this case about the homage boy. Is that a case you think you might revisit at some point down the road?
3: I actually am that's the next book. And the book was called um that came out was called Abandoned Prayers. And it was about a gay Amish serial killer. Okay. Did you get all that? I mean that's kind of a <laughs> the trifecta of wow. Um anyway. Um, his boy was murdered or found dead in a, in a ditch on Christmas Eve in a little town in Nebraska. And they they no one knew who the kid was or where he came from. And I wrote a book about it. So um, and I followed that father, the killer, everywhere he went and did um, an exhaustive investigation because that's what that was my first book. And that's what I believe and still believe now is the way to do it. Right. So I wrote that book. And recently, within the last year or so um back up a little bit there were other deaths involved in the man's life okay one was his wife she died in a barn fire when she was five months pregnant and it was called uh, it was deemed a uh, just a natural death that she'd had a heart attack or something um but about a year ago i heard from one of the amish uh, brothers of the woman who died and you know like And that's another thing, like I'm so I'm connected to this guy. I knew him when we were both young. We were both like in our 30s, you know, and now all these years later, 30 years later, he calls me um, because now he's allowed to have a phone. (laughs) It's like so he called not on his house, but it's like at the end of the road. So he called me and we talked and I flew out there and I got a bunch of letters and things that I had never seen before that really point to a what i believe was a murder for sure and i think i can prove it and so that book um is due at the end of november next month and it's called the amish wife and it's about going back me a little bit me in there going back to my first story and trying to uh fix it by justice for uh, somebody who never got any
1: it sounds like a, an incredible book. Yeah. It will you're, be good. Yeah. I mean, I hope you you won't be disappointed. talking about it with us when <laughs> you're yeah. ready to be yeah.
0: yeah, when you come out with it, we'd love to talk with you about
3: Absolutely. it. Absolutely. We'll make sure you get one.
2: Yeah.
1: And Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I guess one thing we always like to end with <laughs> yeah. is, is there something we should have asked you that we didn't ask you? Is there something else you wanted to talk about?
3: No, you guys were great. And you made me feel so comfortable. And I'm I'm glad that we had this time, and I hope we could do it again sometime.
0: We'd that would be great. That. We'd love that. It was your insights were incredible, and we really enjoyed talking to you.
3: You guys are fantastic.
0: We want to thank Greg Olson for taking the time to talk with us. You can buy American Mother or any of his other books at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever else you buy books.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities.
0: If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com murdersheet murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support.
1: Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com.
0: If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.